we're in the middle of a series called For the Queen City. You see their shirts. We've got this thing going on with the book of Jeremiah. For the past several weeks, we've been looking at the book of Jeremiah. Uh, he was a prophet. His work is in the Older Testament of the Bible. And Jeremiah was calling the people of Israel to not only be in this place that, where they were exiles, this town of Babylon, this, this area of Babylon, he was calling them to seek the shalom of that place. And Wes has been talking about how the shalom is the vibrant wholeness. It's more than just being good. It's being the best it can be, seeking the vibrant wholeness of the place in which they lived. And we've been looking at how we individually can seek vibrant wholeness in our lives, in our spheres of influence, but how, as a community, how collectively we can seek the vibrant wholeness of Charlotte and this, this region. So this week, Alan Love, who's one of our elders, is on the finance team, an all-around awesome guy, He's going to be coming up and teaching on a particular passage where Jeremiah calls out the people of Israel for seeking the source of their wholeness from places that don't have it to offer. Instead of seeking the living water of God, the people of Israel kept going to these cisterns, these, these stagnant, sometimes stagnant areas of water that weren't good. Because they knew them. They felt they could control them. He's going to go into more detail about that. But you see how it ties in? It does tie in. The source, yeah, you see it? It's coming all together. The source of our water matters. And it's true for what we bring into our bodies physically, but it's also spiritually, emotionally, physically, everything. It all ties in. So we're going to go into some depth in that. And to get there... We, we have to first acknowledge that we're not there. And that's one of the reasons why every week at this point in the service we have what's called the lament. And the lament is our acknowledging that things aren't as they should be. That there is more work to be done. That vibrant wholeness is still on the horizon. We're making steps towards it. But we're not there yet. And so each week for the past several weeks, we have been calling people in our community and asking them questions that raise these issues that... That, that highlight for us how things really aren't as they should be and make us long for more. And so we talked about how these things affect us individually, but they also affect us collectively. And so the questions that were asked, or the question that was asked of some of the folks in our community this week is, what does Charlotte value? Now, I, I imagine that there was that sense of if somebody were to come into your home from another place and they say, well, what's Charlotte all about? What does Charlotte value? That was the question that they were asked. And so we have some recordings of their answers. Ask that of yourself right now. What do you believe Charlotte values? And if you want to make it more personal, ask, how does what I value influence what Charlotte values? And is that something that's leading us toward vibrant wholeness? We're glad you're here to consider these things with us. Welcome to the warehouse. I think below that you start to see that in Charlotte we really value appearances, whether it's the house we buy or the yard that we maintain, or whether it's letting people know what part of town we live in, or maybe it's the restaurants that we go out to with our friends to be seen. I think it's kind of funny because the state motto is to be rather than to seem, and as a city I think we struggle with that. 
If I was sharing with somebody about Charlotte and the values that I see so many Charlotteans having, after saying some really good stuff about a lot of people, I would probably land in a place where I would see people valuing big homes and lots of money and youthful skin and physically fit bodies and knowing the right people and driving the grandest cars or knowing this person or that person or going to this club or that club. I would see a lot of self-value, a lot of value in making yourself look good. Another thing I think we value is uh, change and new. You know, we're always excited about the new building that's being built downtown because we think Charlotte's on the verge of becoming a bigger city. Or it's, we're excited about the change that's coming as a new city council members comes into power. But a part of that, we uh, move on from the things that are in our past um, without reconciling them. With the 94 people moving here each day, we're bringing energy and enthusiasm, but we are also bringing a great divide with that, that we are pushing out those that have called Charlotte home for all their lives and for many generations. For me, it's really hard to fight against the currents of this culture. To allow myself to appear the way that I actually am, to let myself look like I'm hurting when I am, I want to be honest with myself and the people around me, but it's hard to let myself be vulnerable and to let people see how I really am rather than just the appearance of what I want to be. I have seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it is real, all that comes with it, and it plays out in my life and is heavy on my heart and my mind each day. Even though I think at the core of who I am, that's not what's important to me, I feel like when I see this and then my idol gets in the way and I so desire to be um, loved and cherished and I get sucked right in and I can either somehow want to keep up or I sometimes hide and I, I don't go places and I don't go um, to events because I can't keep up and, and in my heart of hearts I don't want to keep up. It's also hard to fight against the desire to be distracted by what's new and the change that's coming. Uh, it's hard to stick with the things that matter and take time. I, I feel like that um, things that are valuable, like the things that are important to me, like the poor and those that haven't been touched and um, Kindness can really be put on the back burner, and um, I feel alone, and I so long for somebody, like in my neighborhood, just to sit and get me and understand, like, what it feels like to care for somebody so deeply that has nothing to give you. Good morning. Good to see everybody here. Uh, my name is Alan, as uh, Dave mentioned. Maybe a little unsettling for some of you to see me up here. It's not, new, uh, it's not the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, and it's not July 4th. 
But evidently, we're adding St. Patrick's Day to the growing list of holidays where they let me get up here and speak uh, at Warehouse. So exciting. In fact, I asked Wes, I said, why, why add another holiday? What's going on? He said, well, so we really feel like, Alan, you're kind of like fast food because it's, you know, very important when you need it, uh, very affordable. Um, <laughs> And as long as we don't overdo it, it's pretty good. So, you know, that, that's, uh, so I get it. I appreciate it, uh, you know, and, and I'm glad to be here. But I got to pull this thing up a little bit. So if somebody knows how to do it while I'm stumbling around, yeah, perfect. That's great. Thank you, Dave. All right. So good. So we're in a city, uh, a series called uh, a, ch- uh, a s- uh, Church for the City, you know, Seeking the Shalom of Charlotte as a church, a church for the city. You think about the posture that a church can take in relationship to the city that it's in. A church can oppose the city. A church can ignore the city. A church could exploit the city. A church could ride the wave of a city. As it's growing, the church is growing. A church could try to influence the city. But what we're saying is uh, that we believe, and uh, Jeremiah kind of supports this in, in, in what God says through the prophet Jeremiah, that we're called to be a church for the city. And this is uh, essentially what we read from the very beginning of this series in Jeremiah 29, 7, where the prophet says, uh, God says through the prophet, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare, for in its welfare, you will also find your welfare. And over the last few weeks, we've discussed what it means to seek the welfare of the city, uh, to be for the city in terms of engagement with those who are on the margin, uh, the work that we invest the majority of our waking hours in, uh, the, uh, the ability that we have to hear or speak the truth. And today, we're going to shift the focus to think about uh, what it means to seek this, uh, the Perfect, good, all right, great. Well, St. Patrick's Day experience for everybody here. All right, good. So, um, so today we're going to shift our focus to think about what the relationship of shalom would be in terms of what or who we worship. And I really start with this sense that everyone in this room is a worshiper. Um, and the question that we have to answer this morning is really how does who or what we worship affect our experience of vibrant wholeness and in extension or by extension our city's experience of vibrant wholeness. So we, bring the, uh, we begin with the assumption that everyone is a worshiper. You can worship the true and living God who's revealed himself generally in creation and specifically in his word, or we can worship any number of other good things. Uh, Worship isn't about sacraments and songs. Worship is about ultimacy or centrality. And in the Bible, there are kind of two types of worship that are illustrated. There's the worship of the true and living God, the worship that uh, the Bible says we were created for or made for, or we can worship false gods, what the Bible calls idolatry. See, the opposite of believing in Jesus is not unbelief. It's belief in something else. 
The opposite of Christianity in the Bible is idolatry because everyone is a worshiper. Everyone is placing ultimate hope in someone or something, and whatever we place at the center of our lives, we worship. And across this group of people, the thing that I'm absolutely confident of is that we have this in common. We are worshipers. We are all believers. And really the question is, what are who, what, it, what do we worship, who are we worshiping, and how is that affecting our experience individually and as a city, our experience of vibrant wholeness? So to get there, the passage that we're looking at this morning is going to allow us to unpack this idea by using a metaphor or an image that is easy to access. And Dave has already set it up. We're going to talk about thirst. It is our common experience. We worship whatever it is that we believe will satisfy our thirst. Worship is about the strategies that we accept or create for satisfying our ultimate thirst. So just think for me, uh, with me for a moment. Uh, has there been an experience that you've had where you are really, really thirsty? Carla and I probably, I don't know, three or four years ago now, uh, took a trip to Sedona, Arizona. And it was uh, uh, beautiful. We had, uh, had, a, had a great time. We ate some great food. We went on a number of different hikes. And uh, after Carla's near-death dehydration experience, really learned to cherish life. So that was, uh, it was a, it was a you know, great trip. And um, essentially, what happened is, what's happened to us now on numerous occasions, where we either misread the map or we make a wrong turn when we're hiking, and what was intended to be a couple of miles ended up being many, many miles of hiking. And the problem with that, we were in adequate shape. We could handle it physically. We, the problem was we only brought a couple of miles worth of water. And uh, if you know, Arizona gets pretty hot in the summer, and uh, it's pretty dry, and you need to drink your water. So at some point toward the end of that hike, a little panic was setting in. You know, I mean, you know, it was, we were, you know, where's the car? We had no idea how much further it was in advance. And so we, uh, but we eventually stumble out, covered in red dust, you know, uh, out of the, out, off the trail, and we find our car, and, and we immediately rush to a, to a little grocery store and buy water. And we start drinking the water before we even pay for it. I mean, we're just like guzzling this water. And, and if people had been standing around, they're like, man, those people are really making a big deal about that water. You know, look at, look at that. I've never seen anybody do it. I mean, I was literally worshiping Dasani, the god of thirsty hikers. I mean, I was like, <laughs> look at this. You know, and, but, but, but that's what happens. Thirsty people make a big deal about the thing that satisfies or quenches their thirst. So this morning, as we think about worship, don't think the three or four songs that follow at the end of this service, think about the experience of a dangerously thirsty person stumbling on a satisfying, sustainable source of water. So if you want to follow, you kind of want to, you want the, the beginning, uh, the end from the beginning, here's the big idea. Everybody's thirsty. Where you get your water matters. Everybody's thirsty, and where you get your water matters. It matters in terms of your experience of vibrant wholeness. It matters in terms of our city as we think about our experience collectively. So, Jeremiah 2.13, very simple passage that we have to unpack this morning. And it says this, 
in the New Living Translation. It says, for my people. God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water. Now, the context is pretty simple here. God, if you read the verses that precede this sort of simple summary verse, 213, God is calling out the idolatry of his people. And in what almost seems like a rebuttal to people who would say, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not an idolater. You know, I, 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 you know there, go, go, go to my house. There's no images there. You won't find me bowing down to any man-made thing. So, so, you know, back up, get on the way back bus, and let's, let's, uh, let's, let's go back and kind of reset the, the expectation. And God says, well, no, no, no let, me, let me do that for you. Let me reset your perspective and redefine for you what idolatry means. He essentially claims that there is something that sits behind all of our wrongdoing, wrong thinking. And he says, it's two evils. My people have committed two evils. Now, is that really true? I thought, as I was kind of studying this passage, is that really true? They only committed two evils. And so I just started reading through Jeremiah, and it didn't take me too long. I got to chapter 5, and I read this verse. It said, run up and down the city, streets of the city to see if you can find just one honest person. So I thought, well, that's the ninth commandment. They've broken that, so that's at least another evil that they've committed. And then six verses after that, it says, people have committed adultery. So that checks off the seventh commandment. So clearly, they had committed more than two evils. But what God is saying through the prophet is that behind those evils is there, there's a sin behind the sin. There's something that always sits behind everything that we observe in our behavior, in our words, and in our attitudes. He says <clears throat> that my people may have committed many, many more evils, but behind every misdeed in our words and behaviors is a precedent rebellion in our hearts. And his point is to summarize idolatry as the sin behind every sin. Before you commit any number of things, uh, sins in your behavior, so to speak, there is something that has already happened in your heart. And the idolatry that is the sin behind every sin is two inseparable ideas. We turn from the true and living God who is a fountain, a, a spring, an undug source of water that is plentiful plentiful, sustainable, and desirable, this fountain of life-giving water. We turn from that, but it's worse than just turning from that. We then go out with a spoon or some little man-made tool to try to dig a, a container for water that really ultimately can't hold anything. Everyone is thirsty, and you have to find water somewhere, and where, you're, where you get your water matters. It's really kind of a remarkable picture. You have kind of this idea of an, an image of a spring, of a, a sustainable, undug, a source of water compared to just a dusty, dry desert. And the invitation of the gospel, the message of hope that we really have for our city is that we can turn to Jesus and to drink at no cost from a fountain of living water. The opposite of Christianity is to turn from Jesus and attempt to generate water from our own doing. So, as I said, the big idea from this talk is really simple. It's just that everyone is thirsty 
and where you get your water matters. So how do you make that practical? If that's true, if everybody's thirsty and where you get your water matters, matters in terms of your experience of vibrant wholeness, and then our experience of vibrant wholeness has a material effect on our city, how do I make that practical? Well, there's a quote that we've used here many times uh, from uh, St. Augustine that says this, and we'll just sort of take some editorial license with the quote this morning. Uh, Augustine said, uh, man, this part of your creation desires to praise you. You move us to delight in praising you, for you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless. You can insert thirsty there. Our hearts are thirsty until they drink from you. That's really the practical reality here. That God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Our hearts are thirsty until they drink satisfyingly from him. My individual thirst comes to light in a lot of different ways. Anytime something that I think I need is blocked or threatened or taken from me. Or delayed, meaning I want it now and it's not happening now. My sort of individual experience of thirst is exposed. Um, just to kind of keep with the theme, since everybody's been talking about the uh, Enneagram over the course of this uh, series, so you, you can in, uh, insert your collective groan here. Um, <clears throat> but one of the things I really love about it is that I think it exposes my thirst. It exposes our thirst and it gives useful expression to what I feel. Here's the description of an Enneagram 3. The three types want success because they are afraid of disappearing into a chasm of emptiness and worthlessness. Without the increased attention and feeling of accomplishment which success usually brings, threes fear that they are nobody and have no value. And I hate to say it, but that really just gives word to words to my individual experience of thirst. I think I mentioned uh, back in January when I was here talking that I just changed jobs and, and I've kind of land, I left a place where I've been for a number of years, landed in a new place. And it's really sort of just surfaced all of these thirsty moments uh, for me because I'm sort of reestablishing what for me can be overly important or too important. And that is this appearance of success. So now I'm in a new context with new relationships and I'm experiencing my sort of thirst for inclusion and, and approval in some, some new ways or some uh, kind of, you know, in the moment ways. And just something petty recently, but I, I want to illustrate this because I want you to start to think about how your thirst surfaces. So something that happens, our, our group creates a weekly report that goes up to the C-suite of our company. And... Um, and in the context of this report is sort of a summary list of the highlights from about 10 different sources. And uh, they are, those highlights, one from each source are listed in priority order. And in this most recent uh, weekly report, guess where my group's report showed up in the list? Not at the top, because it wouldn't be a very good story if it was there, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, we showed up dead last. And, and, I, and I saw that, and my first thought was, 
I think I'm experiencing a chasm of emptiness and worthlessness. <laughs> and without the increased attention and feeling of accomplishment, I may be nobody and have no value. It wasn't that explicit, but it was essentially that emotionally is what I'm saying. You know, and I know that's petty and it's ridiculous and I'm embarrassed to even admit it, but it's true. You know, that's how my, my individual thirst comes to light. And if, and if I bring my thirst to work, then all of a sudden I'm expecting my colleagues and my experiences at work to haul out for me buckets of water. And guess what? Those buckets have leaks and they don't satisfy and it's unfair, really. So every time I dip into the cistern of work to find water to satisfy my God-shaped thirst, my cup comes back dry and dusty. But that's me. How do you experience your thirst? Think about moments this week when something or someone stirred up anger, fear, insecurity, anxiety. Those are thirsty moments. And where you get your water matters. So how do you experience your thirst? Now, what is true of us individually is also true for us collectively as a, as a city. We create individual water sources and, we're, and at the same time, we are significantly influenced by our collective water sources. The city of Charlotte has dug some community cisterns that are equally broken and, and lead to things like petty competition or community robbing comparison or resource hoarding greed, fragmentation and disintegration, isolation, racism, classism, all the things that are the opposite of God's intended shalom or vibrant wholeness. And, and as the people, you know, uh, you know, I'm glad that the people who were interviewed sort of were tracking <laughs> with where this was going because I, I agree, I think Charlotte's a very image conscious city, right? Uh, part of the reason maybe some of us were even attracted to Charlotte is we liked its image and we liked the way its image reflected on us. Uh, so uh, we like to, uh, we want to look right, be in the right associations, et cetera. We want our skyline, sports teams, news headlines, et cetera, to support the image of our corporate success in order to so somehow reinforce uh, our image of individual success. That's why we really, frankly, should all start boycotting Amazon, you know, because they wrecked that for us by saying, Charlotte, you're not on the, you know, you're not on the kind of the short list, but we are going to put crazy cities like Raleigh, Nashville and Austin on that list. I mean, really, what, what were they thinking? Anyway, um, so there's really no argument with the idea that Charlotte makes a big deal about success, but how does that impact our collective sense of vibrant wholeness? Well, you think about this. When we establish success as a cultural idol or an idol in our city, then we be begin to believe that the evidence of that success has to be managed in our image, Right? And then we evaluate our success with comparison. So we establish success as an idol. We evidence that in our image. And we evaluate how well we're doing with comparison. So how do you think that's going to affect vibrant wholeness? 
Mallory Nix introduced me to a guy named Jonathan McReynolds this week in her Instagram feed, so I'm indebted to her for that and highly recommend this guy's music. But he's got a song that's called Comparison Kills, and he says this, the grass is fine till it looked greener on the other side. Now you're believing that you fell behind. But why try to match what should be one of a kind? Pressure gets hot, and with heat comes mirages. So you think it's cool over there. Your thirst is real. Ask God to heal what comparison kills. So when God heals what comparison kills, the result is vibrant wholeness. When we seek to satisfy our thirst from man-made cisterns, shalom disintegrates. So how do you kind of bring this to your personal experience that you can take with you in this moment and for the remainder of this week? So whether we look at our thirst through an individual lens or through the lens of our city, can we just acknowledge that we all have one thing in common, whether we're rich or poor, black or white, white collar, blue collar, young, old, man, woman, married, single, that we have one thing in common, and that is that we're all thirsty. And the offer of the gospel is so simple. The offer of the gospel is so simple that it can be, it can be, it can be summarized. It can't be limited or contained, but it can be summarized into a single sentence. And it's this, it says, if anyone is thirsty, this is Jesus speaking, let him come to me and drink. You kind of condense everything that the Bible is driving us toward into that one sentence. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. It's John 7, 37. It's a big feast is happening in the city and it's the last day of the feast and it's sort of this climax day and Jesus stands up in front of everybody and shouts out, the Bible says, this message. If any man is thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. The gospel invitation is just that simple. It says, are you thirsty? If anyone is thirsty, are you thirsty? That's an, that's an admission of need. That's what the Bible calls repentance. It's basically coming to God and saying, you know, I'm, I'm thirsty. And, and I've gone a lot of places to try to satisfy that thirst. And it's never working out. Accomplishments, relationships, experiences, possessions, they're like buckets that have holes in them. I put water in there, but the water just dissipates. It leaks out as fast as I pour it in. Um, Name your thirst. Be specific. It's easy to say, yeah, you're right, we're thirsty. You're right, that's right. That's, I mean, true. What's more threatening is to name your thirst. And to say, God, I'm thirsty, and this is the way my thirst sort of expresses itself when I am made to feel small or left out or don't get what I think I need or somebody gets what I really wanted or I experience some, uh, have some experience that sort of disrupts my sense of well-being. Name your thirst and then come to me and drink. That's what the Bible calls faith. Bringing your thirst to the fountain of living water. For a, for a cistern to, to, to be available to you, you have to do something. You have to dig that hole in the ground. But when you stumble on a spring, when you stumble on a spring, you don't have to do anything. You just drink. The water is there. That's the free gift of the gospel. 
Come to me and drink. I'm a fountain, endless, available, desirable fountain of living water. I can lay down my attempts to self-justify. Jesus accepts me as I am. I can lay down my attempts to pay back the debt of my wrongdoing because Jesus forgives me generously and unconditionally. Just drink. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. A city experiences vibrant wholeness when idols are torn down and the true and living God is worshipped by people who come to him and drink. So that's it. Everyone is thirsty. Where you get your water matters. Jesus invites you to bring your thirst to him, the fountain of living water, and drink without cost. So let me go down one level of detail further and kind of double-click into this in a hyper-personal way. Has there been a moment in your life where you would say, this is my first drink? You know, I am... In this moment, Jesus, I am coming to you. I'm acknowledging my thirst, and I'm putting my faith in you as the fountain of living water because that's really where the whole thing starts. You know, we had a baptism last week that was a marker of an individual acknowledging that they were abandoning all of their self-made, hand-dug wells and turning to Jesus, the fountain of living water. And so I invite you, if if that's where you are, that today you would, just, you would just drink. You would acknowledge your thirst to God and you would drink from him as the fountain of living water. But it's not just about the first drink. That's certainly important. That's where it starts. But it's about building a habit, a daily habit of drinking. Bringing your thirst to God at the beginning of every day. God, I woke up thirsty again. And you are the fountain of living water. And I'm coming to you to drink. And his word just becomes this sort of source of water that we can read ourselves satisfied with every day. But you also need to have a quick drink ready, you know, uh, a roadie, a traveler. I don't know. It's probably not a good way to think about it. But, the, but you need to have something with you all the time that you're ready to respond to. Here's what happened to me this morning. I leave my apartment. I order, before I even put my car in drive, I order uh, my grande dark roast from Starbucks, which is not far from my apartment, and uh, so that it's ready for me when I get to the counter. But guess what? It wasn't there. Again, if it was there, story kind of falls apart. But it wasn't there. And the problem is I stood there like, okay, I'm standing here. It says, you know, mobile order pickup, right? You all know that sign. So I'm standing there, and nobody speaks to me. I'm getting frustrated like, well, at least acknowledge that I'm standing here. I'm not like just some crazy guy, you know, watching the coffee being made. And, um, and you know, I'm starting to get frustrated. And I go, wow, this is great. This is going to be a perfect illustration because I am experiencing my thirst. Because, you know, I think you people are supposed to, to kind of make sure I don't feel like I'm worthless and have no value by having my coffee ready for me as soon as I show up. And uh, so I was able to kind of, pull out my quick strike, my, the water bottle that I carry with me, my quick strike prayer and say, God, you know what? This is just an evidence of the fact that I'm a thirsty person and there is not a man-made source that can satisfy this thirst. I bring my thirst back to you. I'm coming to you to drink. First drink, everyday drink, at the ready drink, We're about to eat and drink. 
in a unique way as we celebrate communion. You can bring your hunger and thirst to God at this table and say, I'm here, God, satisfy uh, my thirst. I have uh, been challenged in some unique ways as we've kind of focused on the shalom of the city and, and what that means in terms of the disintegration that um, shoving people to the margins create and, and racism creates. Because I grew up, I lived part of my life as a child in a South that segregated water fountains. I mean, I have that literal horrifying image in my memory of that exclusionary scar on our collective past. But thank God, he didn't exclude me and he will not exclude you from his fountain of living water. There's only one requirement, thirst. Black or white, if you're thirsty, you're welcome to drink at this fountain. Criminal record or multiple academic degrees, if you're thirsty, you're welcome to drink at this fountain. Worried about how you're going to pay your power bill or worried about the fluctuations of the stock market on your wealth? If you're thirsty, you're welcome to drink at this fountain. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Let's pray. God, would you give us grace to name and acknowledge our thirst? And you, living water, would you rain down on us and true to your promise, bring from our innermost being rivers of living water. We ask you for that in Jesus' name. Stand up for the uh, benediction. I think, I, know, I don't know everybody's story here, but I know a couple of stories here. And the question you might be asking is, is it safe to bring my thirst to Jesus? Because I've, I've tried a couple of different things and they haven't played out. Is it safe to bring my thirst to him? And I'm, spoiler alert for Tenebrae, one of the things that Jesus says when he's on the cross, very intentionally, very specifically, he says, I thirst. You can bring your thirst to him because he experienced thirst on your behalf. He feels what you feel. This is what Jonathan, this is the way Jonathan McHenry says it. He, he feels what you feel, so ask God to heal the comparison that kills. Anyway, this is, the, this is the benediction. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Warehouse 242 podcast. If you have any questions or want to find out more about Warehouse, visit warehouse242.org or come join us on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at 2307 Wilkinson Boulevard in Charlotte. Thanks for listening.